welcome everybody who's worshiping with us on all of our campuses today. Uh, I also want to welcome those of you who are with us on the web. Man, we're really glad you're connecting with us because if you're new, man, you got here right on time. We are right at the leading edge of one of the most dynamic seasons in the life of our church. Now this week we have made some catalytic leadership moves that we believe is going to make every one of our campuses stronger. Five out of our six campuses have a new lead pastor today. Uh, and they're not brand new, they're just new to you. Uh, and I just want to thank God that he has provided us with both the vision to structure our church so that we will have a stronger ministry and the gifted leaders who can actually take this new role and position our church for future strength. Now, many of you are meeting your new pastor today. Uh, some of you will next week. Uh, and like I said, they're not new to our church. They are all seasoned leaders, but they're new in this role. And so I want to ask you to take a moment right now with me and let's pray for God's blessing on our church as we make these courageous moves for the sake of lost people that we'll be reaching in the next few years. So let's all pray together. Father, I want to thank you for our church. I thank you that we are part of a bold fellowship, Lord, who's willing to do whatever it takes to reach that next person for Christ. Lord, there is no, you know, effort we will not make. Lord, there's no mountain we will not climb. Father, there's no wall, there's no wall that we will not try to go through. Lord, to take the precious gift of eternal life to people who are dying without it. And I just want to thank you for the character of our church, the character of our fellowship, the, Lord, the giftedness of our leaders. And I pray, God, that you would use us, Lord, to accomplish great things in our day so that, Lord, the population of heaven will go up and the population growth of hell will go down. And we pray all this in Jesus' strong name. And everybody said... Amen, amen, amen. All right, listen, I'm thankful to be a part of a church that will ju just do whatever it takes uh, to reach lost people because let me tell you something, friends, being lost is no fun. Can you get amen? <laughs> Last week, I was on a motorcycle ride. It was kind of a taco tour, actually, uh, with my buddy Dave Stewart. And something happened that I am hesitant to even admit because I fear if I do, somebody's going to try to pull my man card Anybody want to guess what happened to us while we were riding around on Hilton Head? Don't say it out loud, y'all. We got lost. I mean, completely turned around on a little island. And friends, I'm telling you, we rode through some of the sketchiest streets on Hilton Head. And I know what you're thinking right now, Cam. There ain't no sketchy streets on Hilton Head. Yes, there are. <laughs> and we rode right down the middle of them, all right? Now, here's the crazy thing. We both had a phone with a GPS, we just didn't use it. Anybody want to guess why? <laughs> we were pretty confident we knew where we were going. All right? And when we finally just stopped, I mean, and, and dialed up the GPS, we were, we were just heartbroken to realize that we were going wide open, 180 degrees in the wrong direction. And I'm telling you, at this point, we're just shaking our heads asking, well, how in the world, how in the world can this happen to two smart, natural navigators like us but I'm telling you, it was a great reminder of how not fun it is to be lost. You know, when you get lost, it's time-consuming. It's aggravating. Sometimes it's worse. Dude, you can get lost and find yourself in dangerous places where you really just don't want to be. Now, you know, friends, there's a difference between getting lost and being lost, right? Once you are lost, it's pretty obvious. I mean, nothing looks familiar. You don't know which way to go next. It was so weird while we were riding those motorcycles to come to the end of a street and I mean, he's looking at me, and I honestly don't have a clue whether to go right or left. I, I just did not know. And that's when you suddenly realize you're lost, 
and you know it. But you don't always realize that while you're getting lost. In fact, while you're getting lost, you're generally filled with confidence. And ladies, if you've ever asked a man who's just kind of randomly rolling through a strange city if he was lost, what's the answer he's always going to give you? No. You know why? Because he ain't lost yet. He's just getting lost. All right. <laughs> he still thinks he knows where he's going. He still thinks he'll be able to figure it out in just a bit. I mean, any minute something familiar is going to pop up. I'm going to recognize something. I'm going to see the way he's not lost yet. But friends, confidence is no guarantee that you aren't lost. In fact, confidence can get you real lost because you just roll hard in the wrong direction. You know something else about being lost? It can happen in a lot of different areas in your life. You can get lost financially. Now, you know, last year, by God's grace, we took over 80% of our church family through Financial Peace University at the same time. And friends, I wish I had the time to read you the emails that we got from people who had been financially lost. And dude, that class was like the GPS that finally got them out of the woods. And if you'd like to take that class, you can go to Connecting Point on any one of our campuses and they can get you hooked up. And this is important, friends, because I'm telling you, you know what the number one cause of divorce is in America? Families who are lost in the area of personal finances and chewing on each other all the time because of that lostness. You can get lost morally. I mean, how many times have you talked to a husband or wife whose heart is broken because their spouse got morally lost and they are so lost, it's going to cost them everything they love. You can get vocationally lost. You know, well, you just, you're in this career, but you just don't know where you are right now. And you don't really know how to get where you want to be in your career. You can get, <clears throat> you can get lost relationally <coughs> and, you know, just be unhappy where you are. And again, lost. You just don't know how to get where you want to be in, in your dating life, in your marriage, and in your family. But I tell you, friends, one of the most dangerous places to get lost is spiritually. And friends, this is so important because like I said, when you're getting lost, when you're getting lost, <laughs> you generally don't realize it. I read this week about a couple who were shopping with their five-year-old son. And I know this would never happen to any of us because we are extraordinary parents. But they took their five-year-old son into this mall and they started looking at the clothes and they started talking about the clothes and paying more attention to the clothes. And they were their five-year-old and they started working their way through the racks and talking about this and does it look good and I love that color on you and blah, blah, blah. And after a few minutes, they realized their son wasn't around. And they started searching for that little five-year-old boy. They didn't see him anywhere. And so they split up to cover more territory. They still couldn't find him. They finally got all the store clerks involved. Everybody's looking. After 15 minutes, this mom was about to panic because she is imagining the worst. This boy had been abducted. And at that moment, they hear a voice over the loudspeaker saying, would Mr. and Mrs. Bernard Johnson please come to the manager's office on the second level? And dude, they just went bounding up that escalator, found the manager's office, threw open the door, and sitting behind the manager's desk with his little feet propped up on the desk, <laughs> sipping a cold Coca-Cola with a smile on his face was their five-year-old son. And the second he saw the look on his mother's face, it scared him so badly that he quit smiling and started crying because he realized why they were so upset. He had no idea he was lost until he was found. Now, friends, lost is a bad place to be. And we're going to look this up. That's our four-letter word this week, lost. And we're going to look at the story of somebody in John chapter 3. Now, John is the third, fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, if you want to look at one of our Bibles we've got in the chairs and all of our worship centers, it's on page 887. Hey, who's got a Bible with you? Let me see who's got one. Hold it up if you brought one. Come on. 
Y'all got your Bible with you? All right, that's good. That's good. That's good. I'm glad to have y'all uh, tracking along with y'all check. Make sure this is all right. This is a famous story about a guy named Nicodemus who was spiritually lost in the worst possible way. He was lost and didn't know it. Lost and didn't know it. And friends, as we work through this story, the first thing we're going to see is that you can be lost even though you're religious and value spirituality. Now, you know, in the New Testament, the word religion is used five times. And a couple of times it's used in a really positive way. But the way we use that word today, religion generally refers to a belief system that is all about you doing stuff that you think will impress God and win his favor and you will get ahead on the merit system. And friends, that kind of religion actually gets people lost. Friends, religion is what the Jewish people had when Jesus came to save them by leading them to a life-changing relationship with his father. Friends, in this story, Jesus meets one of the leaders of the Jewish religion in Jerusalem. It says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, showing respect, that's a good thing. We know you're a teacher who has come from God. Nobody could do the miraculous signs that you're doing if God was not with him. Now let's unpack this a little bit. The Pharisees were a very legalistic group of Jewish leaders. I mean, these were hardliners, no-nonsense preachers and teachers. And Nicodemus was the leader of that group. He was also a member of the Jewish ruling council, which was called the Sanhedrin, which was made up of 70 leaders who gave spiritual and, and political leadership to Israel. And it says in verse 10 that he was a teacher of Israel. So this guy, he's got the Bible. He knows the Old Testament. He is biblically well-informed. And in verse 2, it says that he came to Jesus at night. Now, I've heard Nicodemus knock pretty hard about that, you know, on the assumption that he was ashamed to be seen with Jesus, and, and, and that could have been the case. But, you know, there was a tradition among the Pharisees that they loved to just debate theology until late in the night, and, and Nicodemus actually calls Jesus a rabbi, so maybe he came at night out of respect I'm going to treat you like one of the boys. We're going to talk theology till the sun comes up. Now, <clears throat> Nicodemus was also a connected, high-profile man in that city. And let me tell you, when you're connected like that, sometimes finding a quiet place to talk is not really easy for guys like that. Now, I've, I've had the opportunity to spend some time with politicians who are members of our church. And man, I am amazed that when you try to eat with them or have a cup of coffee or you try to walk somewhere, everybody is sticking out their hand. Hello, Senator. Hello, this. They, you know, I want you to know I really support you. I'm really glad to see you. I want you to know I'm here. I mean, it's like that all the time. And man, Nicodemus might have just been trying to connect with Jesus and avoid the hassles of that crowd by coming at night. He was a nice guy. He was a religious guy. He really appreciated the value of Jesus' ministry. But Jesus thought he was lost. Jesus thought he was lost, which means that you can be spiritually lost even though you have a lot of information about Jesus, even though you like Jesus. Now, I got a novel for Christmas a few years ago that was written by Anne Rice. Anybody ever heard of Anne Rice? Uh, Anne is a fiction writer, and she wrote this novel. It was a fiction piece uh, about Jesus when he was a little boy living in Egypt as a, as a refugee. And what amazed me is that it was written by Anne Rice, you know, who was married to an outspoken atheist for years and years and years. She spent most of her life far, far, far from God. She made her name and like $60 million by writing vampire stories. But according to World Magazine, Anne was said 
She was just spiritually totally lost through her whole career. And after the death of her husband, she went back to church and she converted to Jesus and became a follower of Christ. And it's interesting to me that she said she read so much theology, you know, in her journey back to Christ and, and you know, prepping for this book as well. And I'm not recommending this book. You will not agree with everything she says here. This is a novel. It's fiction. Everybody say fiction. It's a beach book. If you see it for that, it'll be great. All right. <clears throat> but I was fascinated by her experience. She wrote in the foreword of that book that the biggest surprise she found in her research was the faulty logic and thinking of liberal theologians who refused to take the Bible seriously. She said it was obvious to her they don't like Jesus. I mean, they dislike Jesus. She said in reading, she was amazed at how many liberal theologians just don't like Jesus. She said, you know, when you write about the Queen of England, you don't let your emotional like or dislike affect what you're writing. But in theology, these liberal theologians let their dislike for Jesus and I think their rejection of his authority affect their reasoning. And that surprised her. And I'm kind of surprised that it did. Because, you know, religious people have disliked Jesus and been threatened by his authority since the first century. But in this story... Nicodemus does like Jesus. I mean, he's drawn to Jesus. He addresses Jesus as rabbi, which is a term of great respect among the Jewish people. And coming from a member of the Sanhedrin, dude, that was a great compliment. But Nicodemus says, Jesus, you know, you're a great teacher. Isn't that what everybody says? You're a great teacher. Then he goes on beyond that. Obviously, your teaching is from God. Nobody can do the miracles you do unless it were from God. And so Nicodemus is paying attention, man. He likes Jesus. He's impressed. In fact, I think Nicodemus was a good guy with a good heart and he's coming to Jesus because he's seen and heard so many good things about Jesus. And you know, there are a lot of people like that. Good folks, good hearts. Friends, I can't tell you how many religious people I know who are spiritually confident that their good heart and their good deeds are somehow gonna impress God and earn his favor because after all, bro, that's what it's all about, right? I mean, they're good people and that's gotta count for something, right? But you read this story. Watch how this story unfolds because Jesus loves Nicodemus and he is a good man who has done a lot of good and Jesus thinks he is spiritually lost spiritually lost because friends good deeds cannot fix spiritual lostness amen? amen you can't be good enough to be good enough you won't be as good as Nicodemus was and he wasn't good enough because when somebody is lost now here's another thing we learn in this story look at verse 3 when somebody is lost <clears throat> spiritual people are concerned I mean, when somebody's lost, spiritual people are truly concerned. I want you to notice how Jesus <coughs> is going to radically turn this conversation to the most important spiritual issue. Now, Nicodemus is not some kid. He's not some tender seeker, you know, that Jesus has to treat with kid gloves. No, this dude is religiously astute. He gets the Old Testament. He is a deep thinker. And so Jesus is going to push him. Man, Jesus is going to push him to think about the answer to the big question, which, by the way, Nicodemus has not even asked yet. I mean, Nick is chatting Jesus up, man. He's saying nice things about Jesus. He's very complimentary. And in reply, Jesus declares, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, Jesus is going radical on Nicodemus. 
He is teaching that the only way to fix lost is to be spiritually regenerated by God, born again. Man, the text says literally born from above. Man, Jesus is talking about the impact of a personal faith that you have in God. He's not talking about some corporate association because you're religious. He's not talking about getting saved by remote control because something your mama did for you when you are a little baby. Man, spiritual regeneration is not about being Jewish or keeping the Ten Commandments or keeping the law or doing good deeds or accomplishing great things or joining a great religion because Nick had done all that and Jesus thought he was lost. Faith is about a spiritually dead person coming to life. That's what it is, a spiritually dead person coming to life. Man, Jesus is saying, Nick, you will not enter the kingdom of God until and unless you have been born again. Bro, your sins killed you spiritually. And you need to be spiritually regenerated. And only God can do that. Can you imagine how hard it must have been for Jesus, he's 30 years old in this conversation, to confront an older, respected leader like that? But listen, man, truly spiritual people are serious about true spirituality. Man, Jesus knows that Nicodemus has embraced a form of religion and a form of spirituality. You know, it's cool. It just has no saving power. And so Jesus is just not going to let this go. He's not going to let this good man blunder ahead, blind and lost with false confidence on a dangerous path. Man, the love of God compels Jesus to speak the truth in love. And you know what? If it puts the relationship at risk, so be it. I mean, you got lost friends like Nicodemus. You're probably thinking of one right now. And man, I want to ask you to start inviting them. Visit with them. Invite them to come to church as we ramp up for Easter this year. Because we're going to be talking right before Easter about the amazing character of Jesus. And he is the only one who can save them. But I got to tell you, this is very confusing to Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus not only thought he already had it all figured out, he thought Jesus was here and he was way up here. And let me tell you, when you lost and you don't know it, the way home can seem very confusing. And look at verse 4, man, because Nicodemus is confused. He says in verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? I mean, surely you can't enter a second time into your mother's womb and be born, can you? Totally missed the point. Jesus answers, I tell you the truth. Nobody can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Man, flesh gives birth to flesh. The spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus is all confused about this born again terminology. I mean, in verse four, I don't know if he's being sarcastic or what. I mean, can I be, go back into my mom and be born again? I don't know if he's being sarcastic. I don't know if he just doesn't get it. I don't know if he feels like, well, I got to say something. Or is he maybe like some of us? He's trying to think about a spiritual reality in physical terms. And it's just not clicking for him. So in verse 5, Jesus said, bro, I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about something spiritual. I'm talking about you being reborn by, the water and the, by, by water and the Spirit. Now, how would this have sounded to Nicodemus? Some have suggested that water refers to physical birth. You know, the amniotic fluid that is expelled at birth. And the Spirit is talking about a spiritual birth. So, you know, he's referring to the physical birth and then the spiritual birth. But the text doesn't actually say that. Matter of fact, there are some real textual problems with that interpretation because the text doesn't say the water and the spirit. 
So you got an article in front of each, you know, so it's two different births. It says you got to be born of water and the spirit, which seems to be two dynamics of one event. Now, I think Jesus is referring to how baptism pictures this spiritual regeneration that happens when somebody puts their faith in God and the old you dies and a new person is born again by faith in the eyes of God. And man, Nicodemus would certainly have understood that because, you know, John the Baptist is causing all kind of a stir by baptizing Jewish people as a symbol of spiritual rededication. Man, Jesus is talking about how a lost person is saved by grace through faith and then their baptism dramatizes, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, the death of that old person and the birth of a new person who is born again. Now, friends, the reason many people object to this view is they assume that baptism is some kind of meritorious work that people do and then trust in that baptism to be saved. And friends, that is not what the Bible teaches about baptism. Baptism is a response of faith. It was commanded by Jesus and Peter and Paul. Man, in the Great Commission, Jesus commands every believer to go through your life making disciples and then you baptize them into Christ. Now, if your trust for salvation is in some ritual baptism rather than your relationship with Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, I mean, if you trust in some ritual other than Jesus, uh, you'd be just like Nicodemus, still lost. It wouldn't matter what the ritual was. Well, I raised my hand at a Billy Graham crusade. Did if that raising that hand is what you're trusting. I prayed a sinner's prayer when I was a little kid. All right, you mumbled through some prayer. If you trust in that, Instead of your relationship with Christ and the work he did for you on the cross, well, you might be just like Nicodemus. And I'll tell you, one of the most exciting things we see in most of our worship, worship services here is people standing in a baptistry and confessing their faith in Jesus and saying, I trust him and what he did on the cross to save me and then be baptized into Christ. And the Bible says, man, when they put that confidence in Jesus, they are spiritually born again. Now, the problem Nicodemus had is he's trusting his Jewishness. He's trusting his good deeds. He's trusting these spiritual accomplishments to get him into heaven on the merit system. And Jesus is assuring him, Nick, if you are trusting in yourself to do enough good to merit heaven, bro, you are lost. You are on the wrong road, heading in the wrong direction. Flesh gives birth to flesh but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. If you want to be spiritually regenerated, it's got, to be, it's got to happen by God's Spirit, God's way, not man's way. Now, again, this is all very confusing to Nicodemus, but he's about to learn when you're lost. God will, God will try to make the hard thing as simple as possible for you to understand. Now, look at verse 8, because we're going to get into some real Jewish you know, nomenclature here, but it would have been crystal clear to Nicodemus. In verse 8, Jesus starts making three analogies in this conversation that he hopes are going to help Nicodemus, you know, be able to focus on this and get a handle on what it means to be born again. Now, obviously, this new birth thing is really challenging him. That's the first analogy. And so Jesus comes back in verse 7 with another one. He says, look, don't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. And, you know, you hear the sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everybody who's born of the Spirit. He says, look, man, we can't see the wind, but boy, we see the effect of it. I mean, when a hurricane comes through and those palm trees start bowing down, we don't see the wind, but man, we see the impact of it. 
And that's what it's like when somebody is born again. They put their faith in God and there's this effect on their life and they begin to see things a different way and, and act a different way and love a different way. Man, there's this spiritual regeneration that's just unexplainable any other way. And then in verse 14, you know, he, he alludes to a story that Nicodemus learned when he was a little kid. It's back in Numbers 21 when the Israelites were traveling through the wilderness after being liberated from Egypt and they got attacked by these poisonous snakes in the wilderness. And God told Moses, here's what you need to do to heal all these people. Let's just make a snake out of bronze and we'll put it up on this pole and then you tell everybody. This will be a miracle. They'll know how much I love them. If you get struck by the snake, you come and look at this bronze servant and God has promised he will heal you and save you. And that's exactly what happened. He said, but you tell anybody who refuses to come in humble obedience and look up at what God has given as a source of healing. If you refuse to do this thing, you will die. All you got to do is look at this image and you'll be saved from this danger. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man will be lifted up. Friends, it would be three years before Nicodemus understood this analogy was an Old Testament foreshadowing of the spiritual healing that would come when Jesus was lifted up on the cross. But the point is that Jesus gives him three word pictures in hopes that this spiritual truth begin to make sense for him and convince him that though he was smart and religion, religious, he was lost, but he could be saved. You know, I eat breakfast every week with a friend of mine who gave his life to Christ right here in our church. And I'm so honored that I was one of the guys who got to be a part of that journey. It's kind of a cool thing. But I watched this guy struggle. I mean, he struggled with Jesus, struggled with the New Testament, struggled with the church because he'd grown up in another religion. And man, he had intellectual issues with Jesus. And, and he had family blowback that he was going to have to deal with if he, if he made a commitment to Christ. I mean, his family was going to disown him and, and all kind of stuff like that to deal with. But I'm telling you, over many months and many conversations of listening and learning and, and asking his questions and, and learning the truth, one day it just clicked for him and he put his faith in Jesus. And his wife and I had the privilege of baptizing him into Christ right over in that baptistry. And, and let me tell you, that man's life has not been the same. But if you were to ask him today, man, what was it that brought you to Jesus? <clears throat> I think he'd say it was a number of things. There was an answer here. There's a relationship there. It's a life experience that gave him a sense of urgency. Man, I need to make this decision. And I think what God did for him is the same thing God did for Nicodemus. Man, God did whatever it took to get his attention, just like with Nicodemus. And friends, he's trying to get your attention too. Verse 16 shows that the gospel will bring a lost person to a place of confrontation. Look at verse 16. In verse 16, Jesus says for the first time and the only time in the Bible, the one verse that is probably better known than any other verse in the Christian world, John 3, 16, let's say it all together like lions. Are y'all ready? Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, like I said earlier, it will be three years before Nicodemus would look up and see Jesus on that cross hanging there, giving his life for the sins of all mankind, providing that spiritual healing that everybody needs. He would look up at that sign of hope and rescue for anybody who's spiritually lost. But Nicodemus had to decide what he was going to do about Jesus. And he had options. He had the same options I had on that motorcycle the other day. You can speed up. Man, when you're lost, you can speed up, right? And you get more and more and more lost. And many of us know what that's like. Or you can stop 
you can stop and think about what you've learned. You can take the time to process it, ask your questions, get some answers. And hopefully that will lead you to the place where you turn around and you follow the truth to a safe place. And apparently that's what Nicodemus did. Now, if you read through the Bible, <clears throat> it never actually tells us a story about where Nicodemus was born again. But we do hear about him two more times and it's pretty clear that this religious man traded religion and for a relationship with Jesus and was born again and saved. In John chapter 7, verse 50, the Sanhedrin is plotting to arrest Jesus and condemn him. And if you're on the New Testament challenge with us, we read about that this morning. And then Nicodemus in the middle of the Sanhedrin, a member of the Sanhedrin, man in a move that could have been vocationally devastating, stands up for Jesus speaks up for Jesus. He speaks out against those who would dismiss him. He speaks out against those who would unethically try to silence him. And he is attacked for it. But brother, he stands up. You know, Jim Dennison was a missionary in Malaysia a number of years ago. And at the end of one of their worship services, the gospel had been preached. A teenage girl came forward, gave her life to Jesus. She's scheduled to be baptized that night. She needed to go home and get some clothes. And they said, look, just come meet us over at this house. There's a big tub over there and we'll baptize you at that house. And then she came over and the church gathered and she was baptized. Now, there was an American Christian there who noticed that when she walked in, she had a suitcase and she dropped her suitcase by the door and then was baptized. And, and so this guy asked Jim, what's that suitcase for over there? He said, well, when, when she went back home, her daddy said, if you become a Christian, don't come back here. And so she brought her things. Now, in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now friends, following Jesus has a price tag. Paying it did not seem to dampen Nicodemus' faith at all. You know, the last time we hear about Nicodemus is in John 19. Jesus is hanging on the cross, crucified, and Nicodemus is right there. He is right there looking up at that image that Jesus had told him about three years earlier. And after Jesus died, Nicodemus and a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, a preacher and a wealthy businessman, go to the Roman governor and they ask Pilate for permission to take Jesus down and bury his body. And Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to embalm the Lord, which would have cost a fortune, but a small price to pay to honor the one who rescued you when you were dangerously lost. You know, there's one last lesson I'd like for us to learn from this story. God loves and wants every lost person to be saved. God loves every lost person and he wants everyone to be saved. Look at verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. And see, that's the, that's the fairy tale about God. That's the fiction about God, that he's angry and he's ticked off and he can't wait to just throw everybody into hell. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now, I don't know where you are on the spiritual spectrum today, but if you're spiritually lost, I pray now you know it. And I hope you know that God loves you and he doesn't want you to be lost any longer. He's looking for you. He sent his son to save you and only his son can. Let me tell you what God's dream is for you. When you put your faith in Jesus, he's going to spiritually regenerate you. He's going to take an old person and raise him up to new life. That old dead you is going to be spiritually buried in baptism and a new born again you is going to rise up and a new eternal life is going to begin for you. 
And I got to be, I got to have the best job in the world because I get to see that stuff happen all the time. I watched it happen to a man at a hospice center on Eisenhower one afternoon. I actually met this guy a year after Sarah and I moved to Savannah. We, we bought this crummy little house over by Ferguson Avenue. <laughs> it, it, it was not crummy. It was a great house. But it had, it had crummy plumbing, all right? And so we had a plumbing problem. And so we didn't know anybody. You know, we hadn't been in town long enough to know who the plumbers were. So we called a friend, and she said, you need to call Kermit Dudley. And so I called Kermit, and he said, yeah, I'll come over. And he and his son came over, and they went to our backyard and started digging up the septic tank. And, and, you know, I'm standing there with them, and they're digging on the septic tank. And I was like, so, anybody ever invited y'all to Compassion Christian before? You know what they said? Nothing. Just kept digging on the septic tank. Just blew me off. I mean, I like they didn't even hear me, right? But you know, when you plant the seed of the gospel in somebody's heart, you just never know when it's going to start growing. And you don't know how many different people will water it and weed it and care for it until one day, man, that little seed of faith comes to life. And for my friend Kermit, it happened in hospice in the last days of his life. He was super sick. And a bunch of us from the church were checking on him and praying with him. And Jim Bolin, one day Jim Bolin went over to see him at hospice and got everybody out of the room and said, Kermit, are you ready for heaven? And you know what? Just like Nicodemus, that was the beginning of a very serious conversation about Jesus. Maybe the first time he'd ever talked to anybody seriously about being born again. And Jim told him, you know, nobody's so lost that it can't be found. And he told him how God loved the world and gave his one and only son so that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. And, and Jim assured Kermit that God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the lost, but that the lost might be saved through him. And friends, laying on that deathbed with tears in his eyes, Kermit put his faith in Jesus. And it was like a thousand pounds lifted off his soul. And friends, all the guilt and all the shame of a lifetime of sin did lift off his soul. And when he looked at Jesus and what he did on that cross and put his faith in Christ, his sins were forgiven. Now, friends, it is amazing. When his family came back in, Kermit told them, I just asked Jesus to save me. And they were like, what? And they started hugging him and crying because a lifetime of prayers were answered in that moment. And friends, when Kermit found Jesus, he also found the love of Jesus. And he found he was able to show the love of Jesus. And I mean, in the last days of his life, he said all the things that he was always afraid to say. He said all the things that he needed to get said. Man, he expressed all the love he had to everybody in his family. And then just a few days later, he closed his eyes and put his head back. And he never opened those eyes again on earth. But with all my heart, I believe he awoke in heaven. Now, you might be wondering, Cam, can a lost person really be saved in the last days of his life like that? Absolutely. I mean, you know, when Jesus was crucified in the last hours of his life, there was a lost thief hanging on a cross right beside him. And that thief was mocking at the beginning. And then he realized who Jesus was and he asked Jesus to save him. And Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise today. Now, I believe that story is in the Bible. So everybody here will know it's not too late for you. It's not too late for you. But there's only one story like that in the Bible so that none of us would be so foolish that we would be tempted to wait until that opportunity passes us. Now, don't get me wrong. Kermit would have been much better off if, like Nicodemus, he just started walking with Jesus the first time he heard about him. 
I mean, Kermit's son and his whole family, dedicated servants of Christ in our church. Man, I wish Kermit had enjoyed, you know, the, knowing Jesus and walking with Jesus and the fellowship of our church the way his son has. And I mean, he would have been so blessed, you know, to have years of the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life, you know, to, to have years to study God's word and years to be blessed by God's truth. But I'll tell you, the good news is that Jesus loves the lost so much that he will save you even if your first prayer is your last prayer. And that's why we call grace amazing. Amen. Now, friend, if you're lost today, you don't have to be that way tomorrow. Father, thank you. Thank you that you've given us this opportunity to study the life of this good, bright, strong, accomplished, religious, nice, spiritual man who was lost because he didn't have a relationship with you. And I pray, God, tonight there will be some of us who will realize that we put our faith in the wrong thing. We've assumed things that are not true. And we need to give our lives to you. And so I pray, God, in a humility of spirit that there will be people who will come today and choose to live for Jesus and ask him to forgive them of their sins, ask him to be the Lord and the master of their life and begin to walk that life that is life indeed. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.